Britt and I have Natasha Mascarenas on our show with us today. She's a senior reporter at TechCrunch by the way of Crunchbase News, the San Francisco Chronicle, the Boston Globe, and, oh, I didn't get the pronunciation for, I always say Bostino. Bostino. Kind of like innovation, Bostino. Okay, Bostino. Yeah. Okay, perfect. So now you know, listeners, in case you never said it out loud. (laughs) Bostino. Yeah. Okay, cool. She primarily reports on early stage startups and ed tech and future of work through the lens of how culture and strong opinions can shape a company's trajectory. Beyond journalism, Mascarena spends her time cooking Indian-American fusion recipes, dancing and writing on her personal blog, which we'll link to in the show notes. Welcome to the show, Natasha. Thanks so much, guys. Really excited to be here and, and talk about storytelling. Yay. And uh, Britt, feel free to say hi to the listeners. Hi. Thank you for being with us, Natasha. Of course. It's super fun to talk to people who get it. (laughs) Yay. Thank you. Thanks for qualifying us in that way. (laughs) I'll I'll take that. That's the compliment. You get it. (laughs) Uh, So the article we'll be discussing today is actually one of a four-part series. Could you give us an overview of what the series is all about? And then we'll do the fun part and just dissect how it came to be. Totally. Thanks. So a couple months ago, I wrote a four-part series on Duolingo, which is a language learning startup at the time and now public company. It was, like you said, four articles, about 12,000 words, among all of them in total by the end. But I really explored it from its origin story of this really fascinating Guatemalan immigrant entrepreneur, Luis Von On, how he turned this bot attacking test he had made into a language learning startup. And then I went from there into product-led growth strategy, monetization, and future outlook, really looking at if Duolingo can teach you a language and what it's offering beyond that, um, you know, annoying but really cute owl that everyone has really come to love and associate with the brand. So it was really fun. And it was actually my first time spending those many words on one company. So a challenge too. Oh, yeah. And it was really well done. And I had no idea about the origin stories about Duolingo. Did you, Britt? No, I didn't. And also just the difference between CAPTCHA and ReCAPTCHA. I never even thought about why there were two different, you know, versions of it. So I was definitely learned a lot from reading just part one of this article. Oh, I'm so glad. Yeah, I think like as we'll get to it, like the the recaptcha slash captcha bit of the Duolingo story is it's probably like one of my favorite parts of and and reasons why I decided to tell Duolingo's story in such a big way. Um, for those who don't know, captcha are those like annoying bot preventing tests that pop up when you register or log into your email, for example. And the CEO of Duolingo actually invented those. So it was really this interesting story of how this entrepreneur has probably already made a massive impact on the world, has probably annoyed you and has had uh, such an, you know, an expanse of impact earlier before he even started Duolingo. So I wanted to really connect the dots between this like test that blew up and eventually I think got bought by Microsoft, but fact check me on that. Um, oh, sorry. He gave it to Yahoo for free. And then um, how, how that turned into like a startup. No, reCAPTCHA was sold to, yes, you're right. reCAPTCHA was sold to Google, but then CAPTCHA was given to Yahoo, which is yes. wild. Yeah. Yeah. Wild. And so funny too. Like I, we didn't get the acquisition price really ever, but for Yahoo, it was, you know, reportedly free that he gave the test for free. <laughs> wow. So I don't know. I don't know about you guys, but some, setting up 
to create your most iconic invention before you start your actual company is like a huge, um, huge shoes of your own to fill. So a really funny story to really start off. I was immediately intrigued too when you said that he has probably annoyed me in your in the first like few sentences of that article, and I was like, (laughs) I don't know. At first, I thought, okay, this guy is another like tech bro menace. And then I really enjoyed how you flipped it. You know, you don't really hear a lot of like good stories Mm -hmm. about the inventors of these things we see online, and it really caught my attention. That's what I'm just trying to say. Yeah, no, thank you so much. Luis is definitely someone who can, um, that who who is interesting to me because he could handle me saying something like, um, "You had an annoying invention and not get offended." So that's probably tip one of the podcast. Is I love talking to founders who aren't, you know, who who don't have enough, who don't have too much of an ego, so that they can we can kind of joke about um, the impact of their inventions. Yeah, yeah, that's super cool. So. How on earth did this story come to be? Did you receive some sort of pitch from a publicist? How how did this start? Yeah, it's funny. So I have been reporting on EdTech probably since the pandemic really started because that's when I joined TechCrunch and they were like, pick a beat. And I was like, why not EdTech? It has Ooh. impact built into it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So um, so on in that world, like I got a lot of pitches and actually Michaela Cron, who works on Duolingo's PR team, had reached out being like, do you want to interview our CEO on the state of Duolingo and new growth figures? That was actually the subject headline. That alone wasn't necessarily, you know, I had to click it and immediately respond and get something on the calendar. But it did kind of tell me what is going to, what I'm going to learn. And and it was really that Duolingo for the first time ever was going to sh- share its growth figures and its monetization attempt as I get to in the series there had been trials and errors. So it was interesting to, to me to know like how this ed tech company that everyone really cares about and knows um, is making money. So that really started my conversation with Duolingo. And I actually wrote that piece up separately. It was honestly just like kind of a straight up piece about Duolingo's growth figures. But on that call, and this is kind of how it turned into a four-point series, I realized that Luis was candid to I don't know, a fault according to maybe some PR people, but definitely an, an interesting way to me. Like it was just refreshing cool. to talk to someone who um, was pretty unfiltered. And so at that moment, did you realize that he had invented catch, ca- uh, catch book, ca- captcha? captcha. <laughs> <laughs> that or did, was he just like starting to just like go like tell you his story and then you made the connections like, oh shit, this guy like helped shape the internet forever. And he's the CEO of this company like how did how did yeah. you learn about this through yeah, talking to him yeah he's been pretty he's been pretty loud about that invention because it is really naturally interesting but it does still feel like a quieter part of Duolingo's story like it's kind of like this is how I got into entrepreneurship but he didn't even really make the connection between CAPTCHA and Duolingo but that's kind of when I started realizing that there was probably an interesting narrative here on like why Duolingo was his third invention and how those were all kind of how crowdsourcing language and even adapting and ignoring critics was like a common theme between all of his previous inventions. I definitely realized though that it was worth a four-part series when I began, re- <laughs> I had this like really, um, I guess, scrappy approach to, to deciding because I ended up reading every single piece that had been written about Duolingo ever. And wow. I felt mm-hmm. like there was still not, there, there were so many little bits of drama and 
tension that were interesting that I wanted to pull on. But more than that, like I realized there had never been a big profile about them that touched on all those things and connected the dots in the way that I wanted to. So that's kind of when I realized maybe I should like commit more than 700 words to the piece. That's super cool. Congratulations on being the first to tell that full story. Yeah, no, thank you. I think Forbes did a really great job, honestly, with giving him a profile, giving Duolingo a profile when they were just um, starting to really make waves. But it felt like a good moment to check with them. And it was great timing because I think a month later they filed with their plans to go public. So it was um, it ended up being good timing. I kind of want to go back to the pitch. Um, you mentioned the subject line. Can you repeat it once more? It sounded kind of lengthy, so I'm just curious. Yeah, so it was just interview with our CEO on state of Duolingo and new growth figures, question mark. Um, super brief sort of email, but I think like them telling me that this was a brand new growth figure. Um, I, I guess it's kind of a weird example to use too because I think in this case, like it wasn't the – the pitch necessarily that it got the pitch helped me get take the phone call but the phone call helped me actually write the feature um like I always say like feel like there's like two two barriers because a phone call never means a story but in this case like they both definitely played into each other I like this because I don't have a great example off the top of my head but this seems very common in that you know, a subject line says one thing and it might not even be the most mind-boggling pitch either but the stories that come out are sometimes kind of unexpected. And it seems like you just had to meet the CEO in order to be able to tell that other story. Um, so that's right. kind of cool. Um, actually, who was the last person we interviewed, Britt? Do you remember? The, the last person? Julie Parker? Yeah. No, before that. Um, I don't. It doesn't it's matter. I'm very slow moving. Either way, yeah, I remember she shared she shared the pitch and we were able to read it and we we're like, oh, this is kind of oh Mia Taylor, Mia Taylor. So we interviewed Mia Taylor and okay. um, I forget what she writes about um, uh, personal finance and travel. That's right, personal finance and travel. And she shared two pitches with us, and neither of them were like, I don't know, they just wouldn't be textbook examples of like what a perfect pitch should be. You know what I mean? But she saw something deeper, and I think right. that's. That's kind of a nice thing to take the edge off of a PR person is like, yeah. it doesn't have to be perfect every time. Just communicate what you need to and, you know, reach out to the right person. Exactly. So I think like the the tip that, I'll, that I share to PR people when they ask too is like, write the headline that you think I would write or look at my headlines and see kind of the tone I strike because I'm usually leading it with what I think people will click on. So it's kind of like reverse engineering what I think too, not to put me yeah. on like a pedestal or anything of like, cause it's not like I'm, yeah, it's, it's, it's more like, Oh, what, like, how do we, how, how does storytelling resonate with the reporter? You can just look at their previous stories. Yeah. Like in their mindset. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Definitely. Strategic. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Makes sense because if we're trying to connect with you and get you to write a story, it wouldn't, it would not serve us for us to go through left field and like, I don't know, just write something that doesn't really align with maybe a headline that you would write. So yeah, cool. especially in like the world of how many funding rounds there are these days. Like I feel like my new bar is no longer, I mean, it was actually never a number and I can say that honestly, and I've only been doing it for two years. So like yeah. that is easy to say. Um, but I think like the new bar is like, if you're not a Duolingo, if you're not a household name, like how do you pitch? It's probably like, does your company have a radical opinion, something counterintuitive or 
honest to the point where mm. it will make people pause. And I would love to hear that. It doesn't have to be through the email, but like, I think like even teasing that that's a thing and, and following up on that could be a really interesting way to turn that phone call into an actual story. Beautiful. I really Lovely. like that. Um, quick question. Have you heard of, had you have heard of Duolingo before? Yeah, I had. I think they were probably one of the few ed tech companies that before the pandemic was growing and okay. um, really taking off. So I think they had always kind of been a darling of the community. So their name came up pretty fast, but um, because they're one of the earlier startups in the sector too, everyone had opinions on them. Even if you were an early stage startup, an investor, um, competitor, it just was a really um, interesting way to look at the whole sector eventually. Cool. Just making sure. Yeah. Um, can you kind of give a brief overview of the pitch? What, how long it was in general? Um, what, what stood out to you? and kind of helped guide you to write this story as a series. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, to be clear too, like, I think like the, the first pitch I got from Duolingo, a lot of things were working in their favor. Right. And I think that's hard for an early stage startup to extract advice from sometimes, because if you're Duolingo, I know you, I'm probably already interested. And the fact that you're sharing something Mm -hmm. new kind of checks two boxes and will at least get you to a phone call. Um, The reason that Duolingo became a series though, as I kind of mentioned, and this is where I think a lot of early stage startups or startups with not as familiar brands can take advice from. um, It's that the founder was prepared to talk about things other than what the pitch was about, right? He was talking about, um, you know, challenges. He was talking about his past. He was talking about the future and and other ed tech startups and what he finds as competitive and what he finds as non-competitive as business models evolve and the pandemic is all around us. It was really refreshing. And this honestly doesn't happen enough. Would be super curious to hear what you guys think of like, when a founder gets on a phone with me, oftentimes they're like, I have six things I want to say, and I will say those things. And if, if I ask you outside of those lines, maybe I'll say something, but I won't be, I guess I won't be prepared for it. And I think just being a founder who can talk about something beyond something that exactly reinforces how successful your company is, is like my automatic green signal that, you're interesting and are, you know, a a holistic person, a full person beyond this one role you have. It just, I think that's really what made me interested in writing the story is like, they were all characters instead of like these single page people. Yeah. So I have a lot of opinions on that. Oh, please share. (laughs) (laughs) I think it works out great when the CEO that you are representing is like, the CEO of Duolingo. Um, I get. I think PR people get nervous when they have uh, when they're representing somebody who doesn't have a filter, but in a bad way, and they end mm. up saying something. Maybe I don't know if incriminating is the right word, but like something offensive that they wouldn't want to be leaked. Um, so I would say, if you have a CEO who's maybe kind of tone deaf, I would be afraid to just let them go wild on a call. Yeah. But um, yeah, I think with the right person, I think that's great because, yeah, you, if they're a human being and they can make a connection with the journalist and actually have their own formed opinions and thoughts, then, yeah, I, it's it's refreshing. I mean, it kind of drives me nuts. On the flip side, we see a lot of this with PR professionals that are probably more in the um, space of like PR firm or whatever maybe a little more polished than in-house is that 
you know, they, they create, it's typical that they'll create talking points. They'll give it to the CEO and they'll say, stick with these topics. Generally the CEO, he's pretty busy. He'll probably ignore the talking points and the PR person will be <laughs> sweating in their boots, kind of yeah. like, kind of, right? Like kind of just bug them like, look at the, look at the talking points. And then CEO about five to 15 minutes before the interview opens the doc, looks at the talking points and then either loosely bases the interview off of that or they're completely unprepared and just bomb the interview, which I've seen as yeah. well. Right? Does that your experience, Britt? <laughs> yeah, I, I have. Um, it's so funny too when kind of an interview or a journalist requests an interview with a CEO and it needs to happen within the next hour. That always makes me giggle <laughs> um, because oh it's like – you know, everybody has to stop what they're doing, put together the talking points, and it's like, oh, the most stressful thing ever. But sometimes I feel like those, um, it kind of speaks to, Natasha, how like you like when people show their human side. And I feel like the less time we have to prepare for interviews, sometimes it can lead to like really fantastic stories that come from that or just a, a way to just build that relationship with the reporter and make it stronger because you're kind of letting your guard down and you know you have to you you can't like fake it till you make it you it's yeah you know I, I'm like kind of stumbling over my words but. Has to be no right no I right? totally am following I think like you know if it was my way I would love for talking points to be more about how to explain how your complicated technology works like how do you mm -hmm. frame that and that is where this, this the talking points kind of start and stop not the origin story not the moonshot I would love for those things to be unscripted because I do I do think there's something powerful about working with the team to help you refine the and, and explain something that you spend your entire life building into human words it's why I love editors right like they help me trim yeah. down things I'm excited about and I think comms teams can do the same for a founder but I think it definitely gets dangerous when like someone either becomes over-reliant, but, but more to me is like, what is like your natural instinct when you are being interviewed or asked a question about your dreams? And I think like, oh, if you can that. help, you know, people not prepare for that and be kind of um, surprised by it, like you get the best answers. Okay. This is cool. I, um, so I like to distill stuff into actionable advice. So I think this is a good thing to point out for our listeners is exactly what you said. Stick with the technical stuff, the things that the communicators are good at doing, which is distilling the complicated stuff into like simple words that explain how something works or, you know, the, the company figures, whatever it is. And then with media coaching, you can set aside time with your CEO and just ask them random questions. It doesn't have to be leading up to an interview. Just spend like an hour with them getting to know them and getting them comfortable with telling their story. I did this with a client last year. He had a podcast interview and it was kind of like kind of like a feature story like that. And we were fortunate enough. I know this doesn't happen most times, but yeah. the host gave us questions to kind of review. And it was kind of interesting because asking it was a lot of questions about like who like who inspires you like blah, blah, blah. And it was interesting listening to the CEO kind of like answer in real time. And he was a little hesitant to give details about like how his father passed away and how, you know, it was a very, per you could tell he was like tearing up, but yeah. you know, 
but I had to tell him like, that's good. Like, because people can relate to those things and it'll make your story more interesting. And I think you did a good job, but maybe that's the key for, that's the role that communicators can play with their clients is to just spend a little time with them, getting to know them and encouraging them that it's okay to share your story. And in fact, it could be to your benefit because obviously we have proof right here mm-hmm. in this podcast. Yeah. Solid advice. I think like the best piece of advice I got as like a writer early on was like, if you um, like a lot of like the stories that you find are cliche or only cliche to you because you've like lived those experiences, but oh, wow. other people will probably resonate with them. So I completely agree. Like that is probably somewhere where like both journalists and comms teams um, agree on, which is like, we should in a way serve as like a shoulder and someone that can understand a founder as they kind of talk about their personal experience and then help kind of connect that to a business if it fits. You know what I really love about this conversation? I keep thinking about our talk with Josh um, when he was at TechCrunch and it was so focused on pitching your startup, pitching the product. And it was Mm -hmm. very buttoned up. It was like, here are the three or four things that you need to make sure your pitch includes. This, on the other hand, is covering the human side of the whole um, startup feature. Like people want to know the background of who founded this company. We care more about who we're spending, you know, investing our time with and on, um, especially with the recent news about Facebook, right? Like I think I tend to believe that people care more about the companies that they invest their time with these days and knowing the backstory of, especially like Duolingo's founder encourages me more to look into that finally because I hear podcast advertisements all the time for Duolingo but yeah um knowing more about the founder I'm actually truly inspired to like maybe ask for it for Christmas (laughs) (laughs) that's awesome I yeah it's that makes me so happy firstly and I feel like there's like definitely a fine line and like I'm sure I over index at times on founder story. And I think empathy is like the reason I like to write. So I'm definitely not representative of everyone, but I think like there is this fine line between when a founder's background is core to their business and their grit. And there's times where it's being tokenized or being used in a way that doesn't feel authentic. And so I don't know about both of you, but like, I I feel like that's probably a hard thing to for for everyone to make a call on is like when should a founder share their deepest darkest secrets in a way that's not tokenizing or limiting or looks at, you know makes them one dimensional um versus kind of is a part of their story yeah yeah that's that's tricky i would say probably getting to know the journalist's work and seeing how they've covered other people's stories maybe yeah you know like i don't know i mean the way that you write, I don't think you're in it to expose anybody in a negative light, right? I mean, you're just telling stories as they are. But I Yeah, I think like there's always like this idea of like journalism is definitely like holding powerful people accountable. And I think accountability is like a spectrum of amplifying. It's also like calling people out on their BS. Like ideally, I do all of it. That's the dream. And I think like telling that I think the mistake sometimes that founders make is like, shouldn't journalists be cheerleaders? And I know I don't need to tell you guys that we aren't, but like, mm-hmm. I feel like there's like this, this line of like, um, just because you're, I, I view you as a human doesn't also mean that I have to hold you accountable. So that's something I'm definitely working with right now too. 
Oh, I'm sure it that's yeah, it's interesting. I, I think this is where I struggle with being a PR person is like my gut instinct is like, I just don't want to represent anybody who is shitty. Right. <laughs> but in reality, <laughs> under capitalism, like a lot of us don't have that choice. We're just trying to like survive. Right. So it could be that we in our careers are going to have to face like representing people or com- companies that are facing with like have some real dark, nasty secrets and uh, bad ethics. And then I don't know. I don't know the answer because I appreciate you saying that though. Cause I feel like people okay. are, are definitely like, you know, a little bit too optimistic about the people that they work for or write about on my end. At least it's like, Oh, I'm never going to write about someone shitty. It's like, there's literally so many times where I've written about someone. Okay. Not literally so many times, but we've all read the stories, right? Like we work was a fantastic company until it wasn't. Mm-hmm. And so I think there's like, um, yeah, there's definitely nuance there. Yeah, I I just have strong opinions about I I think I don't know. I think the way that I view the startup world and not just the startup world but just the whole like capitalistic without getting too like um political because that's yeah. all it's about. <laughs> but I feel like unfortunately nothing surprises me anymore. Like, I feel like I've seen workplace abuses in places that I've worked. I've, everybody I know has dealt with something like that in their lives. I've worked for for so many, like, companies, not just clients, but, like, in-house, where the CEOs were just kind of like their ethics were a little questionable, and just nothing surprises me anymore, I guess. So in terms of how do you reconcile that with being a PR person you know, because it is your responsibility to, you know, help make sure that the image is preserved. I feel like at the end of the day, there's only so much you can do. If you work for a company that is committing fraud, for instance. Right. Yeah. Like, I don't know. Like, I think that's at the point where you have to kind of figure, assess, like, do I want to defend fraud? Do I want to hide fraud? Or am I comfortable with slowly quitting and finding a new job if that's an option that unfortunately that's not an option for a lot of people but yeah it's not simple no it's not and I think that's where I struggle with this career in general if I'm to be honest with you it's my least favorite part of the job is is that I haven't had to deal with anything that intense because I kind of do a lot more data-driven stuff like I don't do a lot of um like company like promoting a brand or a or a person but that I could see where that could be really conflicting. Definitely. I think like that, yeah, just just you saying that I think is something that isn't talked about enough because it just like humanizes your side of the table as well. Like no one is trying yeah. to hold good or shitty people on pedestals. And that's like one of my issues of like, it's why it's like sad sometimes to see people not look at the press as a arm of accountability, but more of like an, they, they think that there's like hit stories. But if honestly, if hit stories were our business, then we would lose our trust. We would lose our sources. Like if I wrote, yeah, yeah, if if I wrote a horribly sourced story, no one would trust me again. Or if I lied or fucked up beyond, um, a fixable way, I, I wouldn't be able to keep doing my job. So I feel like our incentives, thankfully, at least at TC feel pretty aligned to, to like writing thoughtful and well-researched stories um, and ones that I 
would love founders to take advantage of in, in terms of like holding shitty people accountable or just being honest about where they are. There was like the other day where someone was like, I don't want to talk about my pivot. And I was like, people love a pivot story. Yeah. And so there's like so there's so many layers to how you can be honest. And I feel like as a founder, like that could change throughout your journey. Yeah, that's good advice mm-hmm. too. I like that a lot. People like a pivot story. Yeah. Yeah, I like I like this. I guess, you know, being honest might be I think being honest is probably easiest for those who don't have much to hide, right? <laughs> that and like on a, I don't know, uh, maybe too empathetic note, like I feel like sometimes like women and historically overlooked people are scared to to be pitied or scared to be too transparent because they want yeah. to show up as like a strong bulletproof person. But I think there's like definitely a way you can be honest and also like talk about challenges and also be that person. So I I have more empathy when there's someone who's been historically, you know, underestimated. Yes. Who's scared to talk, speak up about challenges. But it doesn't mean that I don't – I think that you still should. It just – maybe I'll coax you around along a little bit more and and keep going with that phone call. Yes. Yeah. I had a client that her story – I don't know. I'm always conflicted. I'm like, should I just say who the client was? I won't do that. Um, But she had a pretty personal story around divorce and whatever, but it was like directly tied to like her job too. Like she was a lawyer basically and it it all tied together nicely, but she was kind of protective over that story. But whenever I brought it up, it definitely piqued the interest of whoever I was reaching out to about it because it, like you said, like it, it's relatable. It doesn't, it did not, I don't think it labeled her as like, oh, this is just some you know, whatever. But yeah, I don't know. It's just hard. I think. I mean, we're kind of delving into too, like the like the territory of like where trauma kind of comes into play. And like maybe it's just some stuff is just too painful to bring to light to the public. Um, yeah. Yeah. I think it's a journalist. Mm-hmm. Oh, sorry. No, I was just going to say, I think like the journalist job is too play the long game and getting someone to be vulnerable. I sh- I don't, I will never expect someone to be that honest with me on the first phone call. But I think like if we're doing, if I'm doing my job right, then someone trusts me along the way to not take their stories out of context and to like use it as a way to better understand what they're doing and why they're a founder or why they're, you know, doing something that has a really high failure rate, which is doing a startup. So I feel like there's definitely some work that journalists need to do too in terms of building trust and proving that they deserve it. Mm, Did I hear first phone call? How many phone calls do you think you had with the CEO for your four-part series? Oh, damn. Well, I talked to every executive at the company and I think like that was what took up majority of my interviews. So, but with Luis, who the the, the CEO, I did like one in the beginning of the series and one after I'd interviewed every executive, competitors, speech, um, speech, um, speech experts. And so, um, it was kind of fun to do like a cap end phone call. That's awesome. Yeah. How many hours did you spend on this one series, would you say? Oh, I don't know. I, I, I do know like I had been working on it for like two months in terms of like doing three to four interviews a week. And then the writing process maybe took a week of not doing anything else except podcasting and tweeting <laughs> and, and just writing. So maybe altogether from beginning to end, like two and a half, three months. Whoa. That's a lot yeah. of work to a series. That's really – it just goes to show to how comprehensive and how um, 
how important it is for you to make sure that things are fact-checked because I didn't realize you had also interviewed executives, competitors, and speech experts. Totally. I think the dream is to be able to do that for every story. I wish I could. I wish I could talk to every competitor for every startup I write or and like experts, but I am getting better at at least curating a speed dial list of founders who will, you know, give me a no BS take on another startup raising in their space. So that's kind of been my way to scale that. <laughs> that's great. So you got a little list going on. Yeah, exactly. What are like the most useful assets or um, items, I guess you could say, or to-do items that PR people can provide you with um, in such a story as a profile? Yeah. So I think like press releases or just like a, like a literally hyperlinked list of announce big announcements that have been pivotal to that to the company is helpful for fact checking purposes. I can't say enough about how much I had to go back through like the archives and see if like Duolingo announced it in this year or this year or with this person at the head or this person at the head. So if there's any kind of like fact cheek sorry fact sheet that you can provide in that way, it is immensely helpful. Um, I also did a call where I just like ran through every single fact I wanted fact checked with the PR team at Duolingo. And that kind of got me through um, the bulk of the fact checking. Um, In terms of other items though, like again, I think press releases to me are more of like a thing that is nice to get in the beginning of a phone call to prep for the phone call. And then the only other time I reference it is um, after I've done written the whole story and need to fact check names and numbers and sometimes investors involved. But um, yeah, other than that, like I think the biggest help you can do is like help set aside time with a founder. And then ideally at some point um, after like maybe the first call or something, letting me do a one-on-one call with a founder because I think it just helps us build our relationship better too. Great advice. If you prepared uh, shout outs to give, I'd love to jump into that and also maybe like um, talk more about how you prefer a PR or even a CEO of a company or an executive at a company to kind of like build a relationship with you. That sounds to be a really important aspect of your job. So any tips you have on that would be really helpful. Cool. I guess like, yeah, my two really fast shout outs are Creighton Vance from Mission North and then Maggie Philbin, who's actually on sabbatical right now, but she works for VSC. I went to college with Maggie. We're good oh, friends. Whoa, that's such a small world. <laughs> oh my yeah, god. Maggie went to USF with me. We were literally in the same PR program. So oh weird. my god. Oh my god. Okay. Well, I'm adding both of you to the favorites as well. <laughs> oh, yeah, I, I would love to work with you sometime. Yeah. If I ever represent a startup, I'm reaching out to you. Um, yeah, that's oh, that's so funny that you and Maggie work together. But yeah, I, th- I think they both are very like no BS. Like they're one of the few people that I think like I guess they, they like routinely bring me great founders to interview. And I think that's really helpful because inboxes are crazy these days. Yeah. Um, thank you. Great work. VSC. Yeah. Oh my God. Okay. That's really cool. I've actually, I've contracted with them only for a few hours one time, but they're a great team. So that's really cool. Oh yeah, my God. Awesome. Hi Maggie. I hope you were listening. <laughs> that's awesome. Um, yeah. And then Brittany, to your second question with how to best build a relationship it is like interesting because I, I would say like the best way to build a relationship is to stay kind of professional about trying to understand each, what what drives both sides of the PR and 
journalism table to do their jobs. Like what is the most interesting thing? This podcast, for example, is like a great way to build relationships. Um, and I think like just asking thoughtful questions about why, what makes the other person light up and what makes them, you know, shut down after a phone call or after a meeting can be a really helpful way. And, and it makes the other person feel super heard as well. Um, I, I think like a, a hard and not great part about building relationships is like expectations. And I feel like in our personal lives, we have to learn that, but definitely in professional lives, like a, a, a strong relationship never really means like, you know, I can influence coverage because of that. Um, and so I think there's like that line of like not also wanting to be transactional with those relationships. Um, but yeah, if you like routinely bring me great founders and if you or someone you introduce me to is a source I can look to to help me understand how news is playing out in the moment, aka this like speed dial list of people I have, I consider us building a relationship because we're nerding out and riffing about news together as in some ways like pseudo colleagues although we have to have like kind of a layer of separation just because I may have to hold your client accountable one day. Yeah, absolutely. Great advice. I I love this interview. Me too. Oh, thank you so much. Really, I, I think this has gone in such an interesting direction and I can't wait to get it out there. Yeah, yeah. thank you both for asking like such thoughtful questions. I feel like the things I said are things like I don't get usually asked. So like I feel like hopefully oh, it's new information for anyone that's listening too. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of We Earn Media. If you head over to weearnmedia.com, you'll find a summary of the episode along with links to any of the resources and more information about our lovely guest and where you can find them online. If you have any topic suggestions or just general PR questions for us or future guests, email us at podcast at weearnmedia.com. Of course, you can also find us on social media. Our handle is at weearnmedia and we're on Twitter and Instagram.